You are listening to the Bellator Christi podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christi podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. We thank you for joining us today on our, for our podcast. We want to remind you that the Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com. We do encourage you to go to the website and check out our articles. Uh, we are uh, actually beginning to... Uh, expand the number of writers uh, that I have at uh, bellatorchristi.com. In fact, uh, Jason Klein, he has become a regular contributor. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he is he is working on some resources concerning the soul, and he's doing a very good job with that too. And so I want to encourage you to go check out his articles. Uh, he's, he's done a great job already, and he has a series ongoing uh, with, with a major work that he has written as far as a series of articles, and he's working on a lot of great other things. Hopefully God will continue to work with us uh, we, we have a vision for something we would like to do together as far as a ministry, and so uh, I'll let you know more about that as it grows and expand, expands. We also have a couple of other, of other writers uh, who have come on board to join us at Bellator Christi, uh, Rana uh, Tarakji, I think I pronounced her name correctly. Uh, she wrote an article on uh, some different areas uh, that that, uh, that, that d- demonstrates the beauty of God's creation, and where you can find different uh, different art pieces of art 
uh, if you're an artist and you enjoy artwork, uh, she's written an article on that, and uh, look, she's going to look to uh, write another article for us at BellatorChristie.com concerning uh, how we can see God in the beauty of His creation. And also, Dr. James Castleton, he has written uh, some articles on purpose and meaning, and we will be posting those articles uh, here in the next few weeks, as well as the articles I've been writing on... Um, as well as the articles I've been writing on uh, the the writers of the New Testament. So we have a lot going on at, at bellatorchristie.com. So go by and check us out, bellatorchristie.com, and be sure to subscribe. Also, we encourage you to catch us on the podcatchers. You can subscribe if you're just interested in uh, the podcast and you'd like to take the podcast, these podcasts with you on the go. You can do that by subscribing uh, to our channels at iTunes, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher and on Google Play as well. So uh, take the podcast with you on the go and be sure to subscribe to BellatorChristie.com. If you would like to join us as a guest writer, if you have a topic uh, that you would like to uh, write, uh, something on which you would like to write in the area of uh, theology and apologetics, uh, something of that area, be sure to send me an email at Brian Chilton, C H I L T O N at bellatorchristie.com, and I will get to uh, to your email as soon as possible. Maybe you have a piece of work. We do have some guidelines uh, for the website, but if you would like to contribute uh, to this, um, by all means, uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, so be sure to go by and check us out at bellatorchristie.com, subscribe, and again, if you'd like to contribute to... Um, to, to the work that we have ongoing, we do encourage you to do that. I'm going to stop right here and because uh, we have a wonderful guest with us today, Dr. Leo Purser, uh, who is no stranger. If you, if you are in the theology and apologetics, the name Dr. Leo Purser should not be a, uh, any, he should not be a stranger to you. Uh, he is the program, PhD program director at Liberty University and has, uh, and his work has worked with, I think is continuing to work with Ratio Christie. Uh, so we're going to have him on the podcast as we talk about a very important topic, topic, and that is the formation of the New Testament. How do we get the New Testament? And so this is going to be a fantastic podcast. Uh, so we will be back on the other side of this commercial break with the man, <laughs> Dr. Leo Purser. Uh, you are listening to the Bellator Christie podcast. We'll see you back in just a minute. Hi, Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason, and at SCR we have always cared about Christianity worth thinking about. And when I found out that the SES conference this year was about pursuing a faith that thinks, I realized that if you go to this conference, you're not only going to have the information you need to deal with people who challenge your convictions, you're going to have the information that will help you deal with the toughest critic you'll ever face, and that's you. That's why I hope to see you there at the SES conference October 13th and 14th in Charlotte, Pursuing a Faith That Thinks. Register now for the National Conference on Christian Apologetics by going to conference.ses.edu. Early bird pricing ends August 1st, so be sure to go and register now. Once again, that's conference.ses.edu. The National Conference on Christian Apologetics 2017, October 13th and 14th at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, pursuing a faith that thinks. 
We're looking for people from all around this great nation who believe this is a great nation. We're looking for the best and the brightest and people who believe in goodness and honesty and liberty. If we've just described you, enroll in Liberty University. Online, we've been doing it as long as anyone. Our campus, just beautiful. If you believe in liberty, know that liberty believes in you. Liberty University, online or on campus. To find out more, go to liberty.edu or call 855-466-9220. And we welcome you back to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We do want to remind you of the National Conference on Christian Apologetics uh, coming up in Charlotte, North Carolina, coming up October 13th and 14th at Calvary Church in Charlotte. Once again, that's hosted by uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary. So we do encourage you to go to conference.ses.edu to get your tickets uh, to do that today. You can catch early bird prices up until August 1st. Well, it is my joy and privilege uh, to welcome to the Bellator Christie Podcast today, Dr. Leo Purser. Uh, Dr. Purser is no stranger to those uh, who were involved in theology and Christian apologetics. Uh, he is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies as well as the Ph.D. Program Director at Liberty University. He's on the board of directors for Ratio Christi. Uh, he received a Ph.D. in religion and philosophy from Baylor University, a Master of Arts in philosophy uh, at Western Kentucky University, his Master of Divinity at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and also studied Greek at Union University. Uh, he has several resources available, including an article on Gnosticism uh, from the, on, in the uh, popular encyclopedia on Christian apologetics, uh, edited, edited by Dr. Ed Heinsen and Dr. Kainer. So it is a joy and privilege to welcome on the Bellator Christie podcast, Dr. Purser. Dr. Purser, thank you for being on with us today. Well, thank you, Brian, for having me. It's a, it's a, it was a privilege to be here. Well, as we ask all of our uh, first-time guests, uh, if you would, sir, please share how you first came to faith in Christ. Okay, um, well, the, the, it's an easy story. Uh, my story is uh, not that dissimilar to, to many Christians. I grew up in a, a very evangelistic church, a Southern Baptist church in Tennessee. Um, I had the privilege of hearing the gospel preached almost every Sunday. Um, but it was not until I was the age of 17 before uh, the, the Spirit of God grabbed a hold of my heart. I was at a youth camp, uh, ironically, in Moscow, Tennessee. Um, I can remember almost the, the exact location. The camp preacher, I don't even remember his name, but had been doing a series on uh, on assurance of salvation, and um, I was struggling. I, I, I knew that, uh, that I knew the Christian message. I'd even shared the gospel with people. I, I'd shared tracts. I'd shared the Romans roads. I uh, was in the youth so you know, I, I knew the stuff, but it became apparent to me that I I didn't I didn't know God. Um, and um, in the in the angst of that moment, I talked to several people at camp, my youth director, as well as some 
some uh, fellow youth, and uh, my youth director made a statement, uh, Phil Russell, he's a, a godly man, he's a pastor now, and uh, uh, I think in Alabama, but he, he said something to me that uh, that made me think I needed to talk to God about this. He said, Leo, I can't answer those questions for you, you have to talk to God. Mm-hmm. And so I literally went uh, into my room and sat on the top bunk where, where, I, where I was sleeping that week and started uh, if you will, my Jacob moment wrestling with God, and um, you know, I, I was listing all the cool things I had to offer God because look, you know, I'm in the youth choir and I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done these things to see what a great Christian I, I am. When uh, I just felt as though the Spirit was was saying to me, you know, these are all nice things, but you don't know me, mm-hmm. and my heart was cut because I, it was true. And uh, I'll be honest, it was a it was a hard moment. My uh, I tell people all the time I used to. Uh, the the you know the the old um, the the old campus crusade tracks the four spiritual laws I used to use those as witnessing they're they're good tracks for witnessing uh, they always have that prayer at the end and I tell people you know, they call that the sinner's prayer my sinner's prayer that night was Lord uh, let's do it your way because I'd been telling him all the ways I thought I was a good Christian and God said that's not going to get you where you need to be right. Me. So my my prayer literally was God, let's do it your way. And at that moment, I realized that uh, the the faith in Christ and what He's accomplished, not what I could bring to the table, was the only way to to to, to be a, a true follower of Christ. And uh, I, I wish I could say there were angel uh, voices and lightning bolts and music, but there wasn't. I literally sat on the top bunk bed, tears running down my face, and realized that Jesus died for me, that He rose again on that Sunday morning for my salvation. And at that point in time, uh, with the, with, by the Spirit's help, I was able to put faith in Him and, and come to a knowledge of Christ that uh, hasn't uh, failed me for 40 years now. So um, I, uh, there's been some ups and downs uh, as far as my walk with God. I've not always been, I guess this is probably testimony of everybody who's been a Christian longer than a couple of months. <laughs> right. <laughs> I haven't always been the faithful follower that I should be, but... He has been faithful, as Paul says uh, to Timothy, even when I was faithless, he's been faithful. And uh, God gets my attention on a daily basis and reminds me that, uh, as C.S. Lewis says, this is a a relationship, a walk, that has to be renewed almost daily. So um, I try to keep that fresh, but that's that's how it happened to me. I, I, I realized the cross was not an abstract theological something. It was a real something, and it was my sin that caused Jesus to die. It was for my sake that he rose up from the grave and secured for me a, a relationship with God that I could have by faith in him. And uh, so, like I said, for 40 years now, that's been the one constant in my life, the Amen. cross of Christ. Amen. And what a what a wonderful testimony that is. And uh, I, I like how you put that you, you've been serving him for several years and he's never let you down. And, and and if and if we're honest, that that should be the the testimony of all believers uh, that that Christ never lets us down. Well, Doctor Purcell, uh, that's the that's the point. I, I think you know in in my evangelism and my witnessing, and of course we all go through you know, seasons. I guess uh, I grew up in a church that did cold evangelism, talking to people in the street or knocking on the door. I, I don't have a problem with that. That's a, I think that's a fine way to evangelize. Uh, but I, I began to realize that uh, that the issue wasn't whether or not I could get people to agree to a certain number of uh, of propositional statements. Those are important, but it's not just the agreement. It's the introduction of the Spirit, the introduction to Christ, and what Christ can do in their lives. And and um, 
as, uh, as my good friend here at, uh, at Liberty, Dr. David Wheeler, uh, notes sometimes the best way to show that to them is to live it in their presence, to, to serve them as well as to tell them. you got you got to do both, obviously. But um, you know, I've I found that Christ has never ceased to serve me even when I was least interested in serving him. And to me, that's, for lack of a better term, strength in my faith, the fact that he hasn't given up on me. The fact that he, you know, every morning, as as, as uh, Jeremiah says, his mercies are new. He's he's it's fresh. Now I wish I could say, hey, I'm you know I get pumped up and excited every morning, and I'm going to run around shouting. Uh, it, it, you know that's there's this is not true. <laughs> but I have this constant relationship with Jesus that I can't shake, and to me that's the that's the most enduring and amazing thing. I, you know, I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that relationship is based on His faithfulness. And uh, again, that strengthens me every day to do what I need to do. Well, if you're like me, I'm not very much of a morning person. I like what uh, Greg Kokel said. He once said that he doesn't really feel like a Christian till about twelve o'clock in the afternoon. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I joke with my family that God won't talk to me till I've had my first cup of coffee. So, um, you know. <laughs> I try not to open the words, but I've at least gotten a little caffeine in my system because, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a morning person either. I'm more of a late-night person. <laughs> at, le- at least I'm not alone on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as a grad student, which I know you are, you're, you're probably going to spend a lot of late-night studying, so you're, uh, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you are a night owl if, uh, if you're a good student. Typically, they are. Absolutely. <laughs> And that's that's another that's that's another feather in the cap to being a night person. You heard it here, <laughs> being a late night student. <laughs> yeah, if only I can, if only I can convince my wife of that, then I'll be then I'll be good. <laughs> well, now uh, as we're talking about the formation of the New Testament, this is a very important uh, topic. Yeah, whenever I was struggling in the faith, part of the doubts that I had. Uh, when I struggled in the faith was due to the claims of the Jesus Seminar. They were saying that we couldn't really know what uh, what was in the um, New Testament, what Jesus actually said or, or, or what actually happened. And so we want to kind of right. investigate that today. Uh, first and foremost, how did we come to get the New Testament books that were written? Uh, how did they first come about? How do we have them? Or, or, uh, how, or how did the New Testament books come to be written? We'll, we'll leave it like that. Well, the truth of the matter, if you uh, the the Bible we have, the New Testament as we call it in uh, Christian circles, uh, the twenty seven books that make up the New Testament are organized um, almost theologically in some sense. You have the Gospels first, the story of Jesus. Then you have the Book of Acts, uh, which is uh, uh, also by Luke, part two of the Gospel of Luke. It's about the growth of the church, and then you have Paul's letters, and then you have these other letters by others, and then you have the Book of Revelation, and um, I tell people all the time, if they reorganize the Bible chronologically, the New Testament chronologically would actually make more sense. The first books of the New Testament that were written were, were letters. Um, there, there is some debate among scholars of which letter was the first. Most, I think, conservative scholars would agree that uh, James, if uh, the, the, the letter of James was indeed written by the brother of Jesus, I don't know if any conservatives that dispute that, but uh, some some argue, I guess. But if it is indeed the earliest, if if it's written by James, the brother of Jesus, it's probably written in the forties, some you know decade or maybe two after the time of Christ, depending on how you date that. Uh, Paul's letters would then, of course, come next. So 
before the fall of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70, before the, the Romans uh, surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, most of the New Testament as we have it was probably um, written in some sense. At least the letters were. Now, again, some people will debate the, the gospel states, but um, I'm one of those who thinks that outside of the Gospel of John, you can even date the, the Gospels pre-70. Um, but, but certainly the letters, uh, I would say the majority of the letters that we have in our New Testament were written before the fall of the temple. So it was, it was fairly... Uh, I, those letters were written for pastoral reasons. They were written to deal with specific issues, in some cases in specific churches, or to give teaching material for churches. That, you know, James's letter... Is, uh, is an interesting one, but uh, it, it certainly it's a, it's it's written as almost like a wisdom book to give instruction to Christians on what it looks like to to live the faith. Um, Paul's letters are written occasionally; that is, they're written to specific occasions and specific churches. So the letter to the Romans deals with issues in Rome. The letter to the Corinthians issues in Corinth, and so on. So I think the the easiest, the the most straightforward answer to how the New Testament come to being was was a pastoral concern. To be honest with you, the earliest books were written uh, due to pastoral concerns. Amen. Amen. What were the standards? And, and, and by asking this question, I've heard a lot of people make the accusation here lately that uh, the New Testament only came about because of Constantine uh, back in the 300s. And, and so as they were forming the, as the canon was being developed, or, or the church came to realize what books were. Uh, to be what were canonical books? Uh, what were the standards that they applied that the church applied to consider what were canonical books and what were not? Yeah, and that's gonna that's a that's a little di- more difficult discussion. Um, it makes me happy. I'm a New Testament person, not an Old Testament person. Uh, the Old Testament canon, as uh, the Christians uh, currently use it, the the 39 books we call the Old Testament. Um, actually makes up a, a canon that may be closer to 20-something books in the Jewish canon. Uh, it's the same books, they just combine them. So like what we call 1st, 2nd Samuel, they just call Samuel. What we call 1st, 2nd Kings, they just call Kings. Uh, the 12, what we call minor uh, prophets, they call the 12, the book of the 12. So instead of having 39, they have a di- and they have a slightly different order. So uh, we'll, we'll bracket out the Old Testament canon. I do think um, the Old Testament canon, as we have it, um, was, was in existence in some sense in the day of Jesus. And what I mean by in some sense is it's quoted a lot in the New Testament. Um, I wish I could say that we, beyond a shadow of a doubt, have every Old Testament book quoted in the New. That's not exactly accurate as far as quoting, uh, but I do think the, a, huge chunk, a huge chunk of the Old Testament is found in the New, but the criteria there may have been different. I don't, I don't know the Old Testament canon criteria as well. On the New Testament side, though, what happened was uh, of course, uh, depending on how you date the life of Jesus, uh, typically people think that Jesus' crucifixion or resurrection took place anywhere from 33 to 35, somewhere in that range is where I typically see at least conservative scholars uh, contend that the, the historical events took place. So if Jesus died and rose again in, in 35, we'll just pick the middle range uh, date, then the, the church itself, the book of Acts, takes place you know, within... Well, was it uh, Pentecost? So fifty fifty days after the resurrection, and um, so you have this this church movement. What happened is, is the church went from town to town. As you know, if you read the Book of Acts, there was persecution taking place. 
uh, sometimes the persecution originated from uh, uh, what we would consider um, uh, pagan religions, uh, the Roman religions and the Greco-Roman ideas. And, and, but a lot of times it also came from a Jewish synagogue who uh, didn't want to see this Messianic movement succeed. And I think so part of the part of the push to have a new, you know these books was this need for material to instruct the masses to, to respond to um, what the critics were saying. Uh, so I think missionary outreach, persecution, uh, well, let's be honest, it, 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 the time for, for Jesus' return got longer and longer, the church leaders began to realize they needed something substantial, something written that they could you know, use to help instruct the new converts, new believers. So as far as the stimuli, what, what caused this to be written down, I'd say you know those kinds of things. Um, the, the church's need for uh, material, the challenges from these other groups, um, and so on. But as far as criteria, oh my goodness, you're gonna. This is. It, it depends on who you read. Um, the 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 criteria that stands out the most to me as I've read through uh, the the various renditions of how the the New Testament came to being. The main one. That seems to stand out the most is the idea that this book has to be tied in some sense to an apostle or someone close to Jesus. Um, if you look at the, the books we have in our New Testament, most of them make reference to someone that we would call an apostolic leader, someone like Peter, James, or John, or someone like uh, Paul, or something to that effect. Now, admitted, uh, James and Jude may have been letters written by brothers of Jesus, but the connection there is... You know, they were, they were his half-brothers. They were sons of Mary and Joseph. Um, but most of the letters, Hebrews is probably the exception because we, we scholars still debate whether Hebrews is Pauline or whether it was written by someone related to Paul, someone connected to Paul. Um, but the rest of them all have some connection apostolic. So I think the first criteria is that apostolic connection. Can we tie this book in some sense to someone who uh, had this original connection to Jesus? Right, so Matthew was one of the disciples. John was one of the disciples. The Gospel of Mark was written by a man who church history tells us was connected to Peter. He's also connected to Paul. So there's your apostolic connection. Luke was also connected to Paul. So and so on. So uh, the, the the connections are an apostle, a direct or indirect association. Um, the the uh, the second criteria that comes up the most in these lists is the idea of uh, of orthodoxy. Uh, that is, whether or not it conforms to what the, te- the, the church has taught as the rule of faith. And um, the, the, the issue with orthodoxy, of course, is the one I think that comes up in these ideas of, well, the New Testament really didn't come into existence until a lot later as a canon. Uh, I'm, uh, yes, I think the debate over orthodoxy is a later thing, but the idea of a- a- apostolic connection was early. We know for a fact that people collected Paul's letters early on. Even uh, the second letter of Peter uh, mentions that Paul's letters were, you know, uh, were seen as scripture, at least by Peter. And uh, he mentions Paul's letters, plural. Now, what letters, okay, again, we don't have a distinguished list there, but the plural of it tells us that Paul's letters reflected. We know Paul tells the Colossians to be sure and read the letter he wrote to Laodicea. And, uh, and, and he, so the, he, Paul intended these letters to be circulated, is my point. And the collections of Paul's letters, we've, we have manuscript collections of, you know, of five, six, sometimes ten of Paul's letters in one book, if you will. So again, I think apostolic 
again, I need to get back to criteria. Apostolic nature, is it, can we tie this to an apostle? Um, the, but orthodoxy certainly played a role in that. Uh, I think that's more of a, a later debate. Uh, a third criteria would be the book's antiquity. That is, um, when was it produced? I, you know, the, the dating of the various New Testament books vary from scholar to scholar, and I'll be the first to admit that. But most Christian, uh, at least conservative Christian scholarship, will date the New Testament to, uh, you know, prior to the end of the first century. I think even a lot of uh, even less conservative, even some liberal scholars will date most of the New Testament within the first hundred years of the, the first century. Um, so, again, antiquity played a role. And the fourth, I think, criteria that I would emphasize would be usage. Um, is, there, uh, is, is it used widely in the churches or not? Um, there were books like uh, Shepherd of Hermas, uh, the Didache, um, and other books that are very, very popular and still to this day very, very famous Christian books that, that aren't canonical because they can't be connected to an apostle in some cases, or they can't be connected to wide use in the church, or they're not ancient enough kind of thing. So those four criteria are the ones that come up the most, but there's others. People, uh, you know, people bring up, again, it depends on, on uh, who you're reading at the time, but I would say those four criteria, uh, is it tied to an apostle, um, the orthodoxy of it? The, uh, the antiquity of it, how old of a book is it, and the, the usage in the churches. Those would be the four main criteria I think most scholars would agree on. Many people ask the question uh, about the time of the canonicity. Uh, of course, obviously, you know, the, the, the official, I guess you would say the official church listing came at the Nicene Council, but were there levels of of, of of canons, or were there canons that were accepted prior to the Nicene Council in the in the 300s? I'm sorry, Brian. I, barely, I didn't hear that last part of the question. Could you repeat it for me? Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, w w were there were there levels of of, of canons, or were there? Uh, uh, it, the, did the church recognize these books to be canonical before the official Nicene Council in the 300s? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's the part I missed. Um, Nicaea authorizes what the church has accepted, in my opinion. Um, I, 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 I think the case can be made. Um, we have the letter of Athanasius, which is a, a 4th century document. We have... Uh, um, we have other references, but even before that, we have the Muratorian Canon, which is a list of books that are accepted by Christians. The Muratorian Canon, the little document that uh, lists this list, I think can be dated to the second century. I don't have it at my fingertips, so I don't want to be too dogmatic there. Uh, but you have reference even in the Church Fathers to the acceptance of these works as, in some sense, uh, authoritative prior to the Nicene Council. So while the councils do authorize these texts and say we accept these and no others, the reality is, at least it seems to me as I read church history, that the church already had accepted uh, these 27 books as authoritative in, in some sense of that term. Um, again, was there a, a list called the canon before Nicaea? That's a different debate, I'll be honest. But that these books were seen as canonical in some sense, I, I don't think there's any debate there. I think you can make a very strong case that uh, the 27 books we call the New Testament um, were widely recognized by the early church 
as as inspired and authoritative. Um, even the letter, even the, the books of uh, John, the, the five books that we typically associate with the Apostle John, uh, the Gospel, the three letters, and the book of Revelation, um, even though Revelation may be a, a late book, uh, a lot of scholars date it to the 90s, for example, uh, it still received wide acceptance among the church as an as a inspired document. And of course it's connected to the Apostle John, so that's that certainly lent uh, favor to it. But I would say, yeah, easy by 100 A.D., the church, they may not have had an authoritative list. They may have been, if you walked up the, the traditional Christian on the streets of, say, Jerusalem or Rome and said, What's, what, what do you think the books of the New Testament are? They might not have been able to rattle off like you and I could do in sword drill, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my guess is when pressed, the church would have said, these are the books we accept as authoritative. Uh, so in that sense, they would be canon, yes. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm not trying to hedge my bets here. I just uh, the problem is the definition of the word canon. Uh, canon is a Greek term that simply means rule or measuring stick, and uh, so a canon is an authoritative something. The idea of canon certainly exists in the Old Testament when you look at uh, the Torah and the prophets and the writings among the Jews. They understood these books to be uh, unique and authoritative in a way that uh, I don't know uh, Greco-Roman rhetoric wasn't. Right. You could read um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, Homer, and it didn't have the same authority as Moses. So by canon, if you mean authoritative books, I think the early church in the first century had had uh, seen these 27 books as authoritative. And that, Whether they have them listed or not, that's the debate. And um, The Mortarian canon certainly is an early listing. It's second century, but it's an early listing of, of the books. And Dr. Purser, you said something that I, that I hope our listeners really caught. You said the Nicene Council authorized what the church had already accepted. So it seems to be that uh, the whole argument that, that Constantine was the one who developed the, the canon is, is a bit anachronistic whenever you consider what the church had already accepted. And I, I really like how you put that. Well, I, the idea of Constantine creating the canon is with all, with all due respect the part that bothers me. They seem to assume, the, the people who make this statement, assume that these books were not authoritative in any sense. Uh, now, if we mean Constantine finalized the list, uh, okay, uh, I, I, you know, I, might, I might buy that. But that these 27 books were being used by the early church and being recognized as inspired and authoritative documents, um, all you do is read the Church Fathers, and you can find that. Um, but it'd be, well, I, I, I tell people all the time, it's, um, if you're a football fan, um, and I'm a college football fan, if you're a college football fan, you have your favorites, right? Everybody does. Uh, so it depends on where you're from. It depends on the, the conference that's your home state and so on and so forth. So here in Virginia, where I live now, there's a lot of ACC fans. Right, so they love their ACC teams as football, but there may be some SEC fans that would argue, "Well, our conference is better." <laughs> and of course, in the last uh, championship, Clemson beat Alabama, so uh, you know, ACC fans might counter with that. Uh, but my point is, the lists are authorized by somebody. This group of teams is considered ACC. Right. Um, the difference here is those teams may shift and change at the whim of the people who own the name ACC. The church never did that. The church, I think, was constant in accepting books as, as authoritative and canonical. 
but later on, they finally listed them. These are our teams, if you will, and we're, you know, that we accept as authoritative. Anyone who accepts something beyond this is uh, is accepting things that aren't authoritative for the church. Now, uh, there are there were churches that uh, read books beyond what we consider the canon. There are still churches that read books beyond the canon. Uh, uh, the, the Book of Enoch, uh, the so-called Book of Enoch, is probably a compilation of several books, but uh, First Enoch is, is widely accepted by some Orthodox circles. Um, and I say accepted, not scripturally accepted, like Bible, not inspired by God, but it's still read by some people. Um, so my point is, there were, I tell people all the time, I look at it kind of like this. Reading Billy Graham, or reading um, some other famous theologian, you know, pick your favorite, insert his name here, um, doesn't make that person inspired. But they may be canonical to you in the sense they're an authority. A.W. Tozer comes to mind, as conservative Christians really love Tozer. But we don't read his books the same way, I hope not at least, that we read Romans. And I think Tozer would be shocked if we did. Um, so that there were other books that circulated that the church found useful and beneficial, yes. But they did have a list, and uh, like you said, Nice the Nicaea, uh, Constantine, they pretty much just approved what was already in use by the church. This is this is what we recognize. And when speaking about football, I, I must admit that I am uh, an authoritative fan for the Green Bay Packers. I have the cheese head to prove it, so... <laughs> Well, but see, there you go. Uh, if we started a debate over the greatest professional quarterback ever, right? It depends on the region you're in is the answers you're going to get. But my suspicion is the canon would still be the NFL. Right. <laughs> so we, we, wouldn't, we probably wouldn't bring in Canadian Football League quarterbacks into that discussion. Exactly. Uh, no disrespect to Canada's Football <laughs> League at all. Uh, just, uh, you know, the, so th- that's the idea of canon. Right, it, it it affects. I'm a comic book geek myself, and uh, even in comic books, we talk about canon. And when we say canon, is we mean this story is accepted as legit, and any versions that vary from this story aren't. Uh, that's a slightly different view of canon than in the Bible. But the point is, it's an authoritative something. So when you say this is canon, the New Testament, you're talking about an authoritative list that the church universally accepts. That, the, that some churches might read books beyond that canon, well, they might. But the church itself says, we recognize these books, that God has worked through these books, and this has been universally recognized by the churches since these books were written. I think I think most churches uh, would, would, would agree with that to some degree, at least. Uh, and I, I don't, I, I think people who try to say the canon didn't come into existence until 400 years after Jesus is, is are, are overlooking the fact that we have a history of these books that's that, that is clear in manuscripts. These books existed a long time, and they were read and widely read and discussed and widely discussed. And commentaries were written on them, and the church defined their doctrine based on these books. So the councils of the third, fourth, and and so on centuries were based on readings of these books as though they were authoritative texts. So that's that's my argument that I think um, yeah even prior to certainly by the the second century the church had a list of books that they considered New Testament uh, what we call it New Testament they might not call it that but they considered these authoritative books from God for direction of the church. 
I've got to run. Dr. Purser, you are the man. I'm just going to tell you, you just mentioned loving comic books. I've got to run a rabbit here. What's your favorite comic book character? <laughs> <laughs> well, be careful with chasing the rabbits in comic books because I'm a geek. So <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> Well, let's let's uh, we've got about looks about like ten minutes. It's hard to believe it's already down to ten minutes here left. Um, very briefly, what would you say concerning the Gnostic texts? I mean, it seems like every Easter, every Christmas, even you hear about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the secret Gospel of Mark, and all these other uh, listings. What what do you say about these uh, these Gnostic texts, and why were uh, they rejected uh, by the early church. Well, you have to remember several things about Gnosticism. First of all, as a movement, as an established religious something, the Gnostics do not exist until the second century. And the Gnostics, it seems to me at least, in my studies of Gnosticism, were very syncretistic. That is, they borrowed from a variety of sources. But predominantly they borrowed from uh, um, the Egyptian, Greco-Roman and Egyptian redeemer myths, as well as from the New Testament where they found what they thought were parallels between these stories. And uh, so if Gnosticism as a movement doesn't exist till the second century, and if the books we call the New Testament were all written in the first century, then what Gnosticism is, in some sense, is a reaction to the Christian books. And so the Gnostics adapted a lot of what, what's, what we find in the New Testament. In fact, uh, one of the first commentaries on the Gospel of John, if memory serves me, was written by a, a, a Gnostic, Gnostic person, um, which, is, uh, which is why so many uh, responses to Gnosticism are based on the Gospel of John, because they were trying to use John's Gospel to support their viewpoint. So the early Gnostics certainly understood Christianity as is an authoritative something in the sense that they could they could borrow from its stories. Um, I I don't think I, I, I'm not convinced that uh, Gnostics were early Christians in the, the strictest sense of that term. I have a, a student in the doctoral program here at Liberty that's doing his dissertation on uh, on what are the bare bones of the gospel as we or, or the orthodoxy of the gospel from Paul's writings. I think he's doing Paul. Don't hold me to that. I'm not on that committee. But uh, um, anyway, he's trying to just find the the what we can say disrepresented the gospel and how does that then compare to the Gnostics? Because I think where the Gnostics get refused is on their vision of Jesus. Many Gnostics hold Jesus out to be the spiritual, uh, almost uh, if you want to Star Wars the terminology, this Jedi who has this special connection to the spiritual something in the universe, that the, the God of the universe, the Demiurge, the whatever term the Gnostics might have used. And uh, that special connection was a spiritual something, not a physical something. So for many Gnostics, Jesus being a real human being, flesh and blood, would have been not so good. It would not have been, I mean, again, that's probably an oversimplification. Uh, there, uh, I think uh, Irenaeus and his Against uh, Heresies uh, catalogs some 20 or 30 or more Gnostic groups. So, wow. <laughs> so, uh, they're, they're, yeah, so the categorizing them as one thing is, is probably misrepresenting them. But I, I don't think the early church ever saw the Gnostics as, as brothers or sisters or part of the church movement. They were always on the outside looking in because what they did is, at least as I see it, it's kind of a smorgasbord approach. They they grab from the New Testament, they grab from the, the Christian teachings what fit in with their view of 
the universe, their their worldview, and they adapted that material. So the Gospel of, of Thomas, the Gospel, and the Gospel of Thomas, with all due respect, is probably one of the earlier Gnostic writings, and actually does have some close affinities with the, the Gospels themselves in the sense that it has a lot of the same material. I, I'm of the opinion that the author of Thomas is borrowing from some of the Synoptic Gospels, but uh, the main thing is the depiction of Jesus. They Almost universally, the Gnostics depict Jesus in a way that the New Testament does not. And therefore, this is the reason I think the Church rejects Gnosticism as, uh, as, as an appropriate... Uh, uh, or They reject it as orthodox. It's not orthodox in their mind because of how they treat Jesus. Real, real quickly, I've heard Bart Ehrman make, make the claim that, uh, that there were, in his opinion... Uh, various competing versions of Christianity, and only one won out due to political persuasion. Uh, yet others have noted right. that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, that Gnosticism didn't come about until much later. Uh, is there any merit to his idea of competing early Christianities, and, and how? What would you say to that uh, to that claim? Well, I'm 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 hesitant to talk of. Uh, in, in, in my lifetime, we've moved from talking about Judaism to Judaisms, and now we've moved from talking of Christianity to Christianities, plural. And uh, I'll be honest with you, in my studies, I'm a little hesitant to adapt either approach. But there were a variety of views in what we would call classic Judaism, or first century Judaism, the Judaism of the Second Temple, is true. There, there were Sadducees and Pharisees, and they didn't hold all the exact same doctrinal viewpoints. But they did have some constants between them. For example, the temple, uh, the Torah, um, uh, the monotheism. So they, they may have disagreed on points like angels and resurrection. You can find this in the New Testament between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they agreed on some major points. Um, and, and you find the same thing, I think, in, the, in Christianity of the New Testament. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God manifest among us. Is a fairly universal statement in Christian circles. God came down to us. He who, uh, I was just reading this in John's Gospel of the day, uh, you can't ascend to bring God down. The only one who can ascend to heaven is one who's descended from heaven. So Jesus himself, God himself, came to dwell among us. Uh, the Gnostics liked that idea, and, and borrowed that idea, but Jesus wasn't really one of us. He was always, uh, you know, different. And I think that's the, the key point. Who is Jesus? Um, and so any competing Christianities, plural, okay, if you're thinking denominations, like, you know, Southern Baptists and Assemblies of God, to pick on two uh, conservative denominations in America, uh, we disagree on some things as denominations, but we agree on some major Christian truths. And, you know, we might think the other is unorthodox, but we, uh, you know, it's less likely that we consider each other heretical. So the idea of competing early Christianities, if you mean by that denominational type things, they differed over, you know, some of these small details. Okay, I'm still not comfortable with it. I think that's, that's a different thing. But if you're saying there were literally Christianities that saw Jesus in a radically different way, and yet were still considered part of the Christian faith, I I'm, I just don't buy it. Uh, there's a there's a great book out. Um, Larry Hurtado has written a book, uh, the the story of the gods, in which he talks a little bit about the the uniqueness of Christianity in the first century. I haven't finished the book yet. Uh, what I've read of it, I've, I've really enjoyed. And uh, Hurtado does 
advocate some of this language of Christianities, but he's also advocating this idea that Christianity is a is a, a religious something was distinguished by some things, and one of those things is how they viewed Jesus. And so, again, I, I guess I'd want to ask somebody, what do you mean by competing Christianities? I know what Urban means by that. He thinks Gnosticism was one of the early Christianities. I, I'm not convinced that any Orthodox Christian group accepted Gnostics as, as, as full-fledged Christians. Um, but that there were Christians of different stripes I mean, look around America. We got we got Episcopalians, we've got Methodists, we've got Baptists, we've got you know a variety, and you know many of them are my brothers in Christ. So I, it's, but we're going to disagree on some stuff. So I hope that's. I'm trying not to be too <laughs> ambiguous here. I just don't see in the new in the New Testament. I don't see that there was a competition like between Jewish or Greek Christianity, or there's a competition between Orthodox and Gnostic Christianity. The, in the, as the New Testament presents the story, they all saw Jesus as something significant and central. And how you saw Jesus de- determined whether you were in or not. Absolutely. The Gnostics definitely, at least in my opinion, as I've studied them, saw Jesus in a way that would have not put them in. Let's just leave it at that. I hope that helps. Absolutely, and I, I was thinking about what, as you were talking about different denominations, <laughs> if you were just to even take... There, there is some truth to the idea that orthodoxy um, tried to do away with uh, the unorthodox or even the heterodox, the heretical. Um, I mean, uh, Irenaeus is against heresies is, is, is key of that, and the fact that, uh, that the church did try to uh, establish a rule of faith. That's Again, I'm not going to debate church history here, I just don't know that uh, Ehrman's argument. Ehrman is is it seems to me at least, and I haven't read any of his stuff in a while, so I want to be careful what I say. Uh, but Ehrman seems to be trying to make a case to include a certain kind of Gnostic idea as a Christian idea, and I'm just not sure he's made the case well enough to, to for me. Yeah, he hasn't made it well enough for me to agree with it at least. But I don't think he's made the case. I think. The, the, that there was competition about what is orthodox and what isn't, yes, that's true. But to say that, you know, one one out due to primary political issues, I'm not sure that the history spells that out as clearly as, as Ehrman wants, wants to claim. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's been addressed by countless others, uh, well, maybe not countless, but uh, dozens of others in apologetics that, uh, that, that Ehrman's view is is a bit uh, a bit uh, narrow on that issue. Absolutely, and I would agree. I was thinking as you were talking about the different denominations, I mean, my goodness, if you were just to take the denomination of Baptists, there's probably a hundred different types of Baptists in America alone, if not more than that. Ah, you know, I, so... <laughs> I guarantee you, I, I, I did a study once when I was a young man on a variety of Baptists just using... Uh, is it uh, Mead's uh, Handbook of the Denominations? I think that's the right title. It is Handbook of the Denominations. I don't remember who the author is. But uh, there were, in the Baptist section alone, there were you know dozens of, I don't want to say hundreds because it's probably exaggerating. Statistically speaking, there are hundreds. Uh, there were dozens of Baptists, a variety of stripes. 
and uh, and even among Southern Baptists, there you know that, that's the tradition I grew up in. Uh, there are Southern Baptists that uh, lean a little more charismatic than some other Southern Baptists. There's some that lean a little more reformed than others, um, and yet they all kind of fall in, in, in some sense within a Southern Baptist umbrella. I guess it depends on who's defining that. So in that sense, again, denominationally, were there differences? Well. I don't know they would call them denominations, obviously, in the first three centuries, four centuries of the church. But, um, yeah, Origen didn't always agree with the other church fathers. Tertullian didn't always agree with the people around him, I'm assuming. I mean, um, so that there were ideas that were being battered about, yes. That there was this political intrigue that the, the, the reigning group was trying to get rid of people that were noisy and minority and, you know, pushy or whatever. I, I just don't see that spelled out in church history as, as clearly as Bart Ehrman seems to see it. I'm not convinced. Absolutely. Um, I think there was a, a, a orthodox version of Christianity, and in 2,000 years, it's, you know, the service is the Reformation since we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of this uh, event uh, this year. Uh, since Protestant Reformation, the proliferation of Christian groups is amazing, right? But in the first probably five centuries of the church, it wasn't as, I mean, there were different ideas, yes, but it wasn't nearly as uh, mind-boggling as it might be if you go through the handbook of denominations today. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Purser, believe it or not, we have completely run out of time. Uh, I want to encourage everyone. <laughs> uh, hard, I, I've got to get you back on here if you, if uh, sometime when you're available. This has been a fantastic discussion. If you want to find more uh, from Dr. Purser, he blogs at beyondthewardrobe. Uh, dot, is it wordpress.com? Uh, blogspot. Blogspot. Uh, so that's beyondthewardrobe.blogspot.com. So be sure to go by and check out his blog. Once again, Dr. Purser, thank you for being with us today on the Bellator Christie Podcast. For Dr. Purser, this is Brian Chilton saying God bless. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we encourage you to join us the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Michaela Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.